Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show are available free. Uh, your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, did what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just hey one everybody, time. Hey, everybody. Hello. How's it going? Welcome <laughs> right. to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I am here in Los Angeles. Thanks for tuning in. Ruth Ozeki is my guest today. She is a novelist, a filmmaker, and a Zen Buddhist priest. Her first two novels are called My Year of Meats. That was published in 1998. And All Over Creation, which arrived in 2003. Her most recent novel is called A Tale for the Time Being. It was published in 2013 and was a breakout success. It won the LA Times Book Prize. It was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award and was published in over 30 countries. In 2016, she published a personal, uh, a work of personal nonfiction called The Face, A Time Code. She has made documentary and dramatic independent films, including Having the Bones, which appeared on PBS and at the Sundance Film Festival. She's a longtime Buddhist practitioner and was ordained in 2010 as a Zen Buddhist priest. She's affiliated with the Brooklyn Zen Center and the Everyday Zen Foundation. So, so much for me to talk about with Ruth. If you guys have listened to this show for any length of time, you know that I'm uh, very interested in Buddhism. So I was especially excited to get a chance to speak with Ruth and to talk about this and to talk about her life and work. And uh, I figured it would be a good episode to do on a Sunday. So let's get right to it. This is Ruth Ozeki, author, filmmaker, and Zen Buddhist priest. I was um, born in New Haven, Connecticut. My parents were both at Yale. Um, and uh, my mom's Japanese and my dad's uh, Caucasian American. Uh, so, you know, I was, I was a mixed race kid growing up on the East Coast, which was always very strange. Um, my dad was an anthropologist at Yale. Um, and so I always thought of myself as being half Asian and half anthropologist, right? <laughs> except, except back then we, we went, you know, when I was, I was 
born in 1956, so I'm 62 now. And back then, we weren't even using the word Asian. I think we were using the word Oriental still. So, you know, I was sort of half Oriental, half anthropologist. And um, and it was interesting. It was an interesting place to grow up because um, at that time, most of the anthropologists at Yale, I think they were all white men, because at that time, you know, Yale wasn't hiring women. Um, and, uh, and many of these white male anthropologists had oriental wives. And in fact, the, it, was, it, was a, um, it was kind of a joke in the anthropology department that in order to get tenure in that department, you had to have an oriental wife. And, um, and it was the wives who told this joke, right? Um, and so it was a very strange, you know, community to grow up in because it was, you know, on, on one hand, uh, you know, it was, it was a, it was an academic, you know, it was an academic community, but there were all of these little children running around who were, you know, half oriental and half anthropologists. Right. Okay. Um, but so I'm curious because like the anthropologists, they couldn't have all been working in, in, uh, Asia, right? Like they had, yeah, to, right? they had to I have know. been specializing in area, other areas, but they, they wound up, they wound up having Asian wives. Asian wives. And it, I mean, it, it just, it, it, it's a little creepy, right? It's a little, you know, it's a little, it's a, the, the, you know, uh, the politics there is a little, you know, both the, the, you know, gender politics and the race politics are a little problematic there. But in any case, you know, it was, it was 1956. So things were different, right? Um, anyway, so that was the, that was the, you know, the, the context I grew up in. And, um, when I was, uh, I think I, when I was three, I, um, I met, my grandparents, my Japanese grandparents, for the first time, and um, the first time I ever laid eyes on them, um, I think they had arrived uh, late at night, possibly. And um, I remember, you know, in the morning, uh, my mother was preparing breakfast, and she sent me into the bedroom where they were sleeping to call them for breakfast. And um, I have this. This is the first memory I have, uh, you know, as a as a little person, right? Um, and I remember. Um, you know, sort of reaching up to turn the handle of the door and opening the bedroom door and seeing my grandfather sitting cross-legged on the floor. And he um, was rocking sort of gently from side to side. Um, and, I, you know, he, he was just finishing meditation. And um, he opened his eyes and that was, you know, and he looked right at me. And it was one of those moments that, uh, you know, I, I just in a way, kind of imprinted on this. Um, and what struck me was that he was my height, right? Because I was three and, and he was sitting on the floor. So, and I'd never seen an adult sit on the floor like that before. Um, hmm. So that seemed very strange to me. And, um, and, and this was all, it was all very mysterious and, and impressive. And, um, and I must have gone, you know, running out and, and my mother tried to explain to me, you know, that they were doing exercises. That's what she said. They were doing breathing exercises. Um, but then later I realized that this was, this was Zazen, you know, they were sitting Zen meditation. And, um, you know, so I think that in a way it was a kind of like an imprinting, you know, it was like a little duckling imprinting on this, this image. And, um, and I, ever since that time, I was always really interested in, in, you know, in meditation. And of course, this was also the '60s, and so you know everybody was interested was in meditation. Say, yeah. Even better, but I, I'm right. cu I'm curious. Yeah. I, I didn't realize that you were were raised with it, but 
I have a, you know, I have kids and I'm, I'm sort of wondering like, how do I introduce this to them? Should I introduce this to them? Cause I, I speak as someone who was raised Catholic and and it didn't really take. And I sort of remember, I remember resenting being forced to go to church and all this stuff. So I don't want to repeat that uh, pattern where I'm like forcing the issue with my kids and then causing, I don't know, unnecessary, uh, you know, animosity or whatever, or ill feelings, sure. but like you just, you just took right to it. Did you start practicing as a, as a young person? Uh, well, I, you know, I tried, but I didn't really, of course, know what I was doing at all. You know, it wasn't like my grandparents were around a lot. And, um, in fact, I'd really only met my grandfather that once. Um, my mother certainly didn't practice. She, she, you know, had no use for it at all. In fact, she was raised, she was raised Christian and, um, and, and she used to call, that's right. She used to say, I don't understand why you spend so much time squatting on the floor, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so she really had no use for this at all. And, um, and, uh, but when I was, I, I mean, I remember being, I don't know, nine, eight, nine, ten years old, you know, and lighting a candle and sitting cross-legged on the floor and staring at the candle flame thinking that, you know, oh, I'm meditating, you know. Um, I remember having a little book of, of Zen koans that I used to read and, and think they were, you know, I thought they were very profound and enigmatic and, you know, uh, had just kept hoping for, you know, enlightenment to, to, to happen. Um, and, and then I, I think when I was 14, I was um, uh, initiated into transcendental meditation, right? Oh, and you they, were. Yeah, yeah, they give you a they give you a mantra, you know, and that was that seemed very important to me. Okay, but um, so how did that happen yeah. though? Like did you I was in school and and some of the some you know, some of the hippie kids that I was hanging out with um had had heard about this and they so we all went into Boston and and we all got initiated into transcendental meditation. I think they must have been having I think they have sales, you know, for for to get young people involved and I think it cost us very little money. Um, which is why we're able to do it. Sure. Um, and I and I did that. I, I I meditated, you know, using my mantra for, um, I you know for for several years. I mean, you know, erratically, but um, but it was it was important, you know. And did um, you were you a hippie? Uh, like, were you a hippie kid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a total hippie kid. Yeah, I, I, you know, would spend my summers on a commune in Maine making granola and bread, and you know, with your parents. No, not with my parents. I I, um, I kind of left home when I was fourteen, um, and so I just you know was uh, spent you know spent summers um, doing other things with other kids. Doing well, other so things. why did you leave? Yeah. Well, you know my parents they they were you know they were wonderful and they tried really hard, but I was uh, I think I was a difficult child and um, and they were uh, they were quite a bit older they they had me when they were 42 so they and and at that time too i mean you know the generation gap was a real thing back then um and i so i just never really wanted to go home after that and you know i would see them at holidays but um most of the you know most of my summers i would spend uh with friends doing other things um and and i think you know it was probably a very good thing that i didn't have to go back and spend a lot of time with them because I think we were, we were able to have a relationship later on as adults um, because we managed to get past the rocky years somehow. And you didn't, and you were an only child? I was an only child. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. Well, no, that's interesting because, you know, you have that big of a gap age wise and then you're hitting those really, I mean, they're, they're difficult years for everybody. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I can distinctly remember you just want your independence, but yet you're still young. 
but yet you seem to, I mean, 14 is really young to be off on your own for the summer. You seem to have pulled it off. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I was in, I went to boarding school and, and so I was already spending the, you know, the school year away from my parents. And so then it was just a matter of, you know, I, I, there was always something, something interesting to do for the summers. And, and, you know, so I would, I would go and do that, but no, you're right at the time, you know, I, I think this is just true for my generation. We didn't, we wanted to be, we desperately wanted to be independent. You know, we, we, um, you know, we, we wanted to live on our own. We tried to get jobs, you know, when, whenever we could, um, it, it, that was, it was hugely important for everyone I knew. So I, I don't think I was that unusual. Um, certainly not amongst my friends. Uh, and I think that's changed. I think, I think nowadays parents have a much closer relationship with their, their children. And certainly, you know, I mean, the, the students I teach at Smith, um, you know, I mean, they, they actually, you know, talk with their parents on a daily basis. You know, I, that would have been unimaginable for me. You know, I mean, granted, you know, back then, you know, we were using telephones that had long distance, you know. Right, right. <laughs> you know, so it was very different, right? I mean, we, we, you know, we weren't texting each other, that's for sure, you know. But I don't know whether we would have, even had the technology existed. I, I, talking to anybody every day is a little much, let's be honest. Right. I, well, you know, I mean, I think so, but they seem very happy with it. You know, they seem, they seem very happy, and their parents are very supportive of them and seem to know everything that's going on in their lives, which is, would have been absolutely unthinkable for me. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that, you know, it would have killed them. I talked to my no. si- I talked to my little sister. I have two sisters, and I talked. Oh, my- nice! Yeah, nice. I, ta- I talked to my little sister once, and she's like, "Yeah, I, you know, I talk to mom every day," and uh-huh. I and I was like, "Really? Like, you, I didn't realize this, you know? But they're calling each other every day." I'm like, "That's wow. uh, I don't know, I don't know what I'm doing wrong, or I guess it's just different for different people." But yeah, what do yeah, you what do yeah. you what do you say every day? Like, you just pick, yeah. a, pick up the phone and call. I guess they must just small talk it. I don't know what they do. I don't know. I've never had that kind of conversation with my parents ever. Have I had small talk with my parents? Like, what did you eat for breakfast? You know, I mean, like, no, no. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So what, like, what boarding school did you go to? I went to a school called Concord Academy okay. in, Concord, in Concord, Massachusetts. I have an endless fascination with like boarding school mm-hmm. uh, experiences, you know, both, both as, a, as a literary form, but I'm also always fascinated with like what it was like to, mm-hmm. go, to go away to school that young. And you sort of have this autonomy 
uh, to a degree. And these really deep friendships, I would imagine, have to form when you're in that circumstance with other young people. And then there's always like really good stories of debauchery. And <laughs> there's all, there's often like a lot of uh, trauma and difficulty as well, but it just seems like a really rich atmosphere. Like what was your experience yeah, of it? Yeah, yeah. Well, Concord was a, um, Concord was a smaller boarding school. So it wasn't like the, you know, it, it wasn't one of the larger, you know, boarding schools. So as a result, it was more, I think it was more personal, you know, um, it, you know, for me, honestly, I think, um, you know, leaving at, 14, even though I kind of had to get away from my parents, you know, it, going to boarding school was still, was not the best option either. I don't know what would have been a better option on the other hand. Um, but I, you know, I really struggled. Um, and I remember, you know, within the first couple of months, I was already trying to run away, um, with, I, I had, I had made two friends at that point and, um, uh, and we decided, you know, that this just was not working. And, um, and so clearly the only solution to our problems was to run away to San Francisco to hate Ashbury and, um, and become hippies, you know, in hate Ashbury. That sounds good. And so, yeah, right. Well, it seemed like a really, <laughs> I mean, it, it seemed like the only solution and it was a logical solution at the time. And, and so we snuck out of the dormitories, um, late at night and, uh, went, um, walked to, you know, I think it was route nine and, um, and stuck out our thumbs and, and waited. And, um, you know, I mean, thank God nobody stopped and picked us up. You know, that's all I can think now. Um, cause it was late. It was, you know, at, it was late at night and we were 14. Okay. And, um, and so thankfully nobody stopped and, um, it was getting cold. So it must've been, it must've been October or November. In other words, school had been in session for like what? a month, two months. <laughs> You'd already had enough. <laughs> We'd had enough, right? We just knew it was, this was not going to work. So anyway, so, um, you know, we, we got cold and, uh, and sleepy and, um, and we, you know, decided, okay, let's, let's go find shelter for the night. Um, and we'll go find someplace and we'll, we'll sleep and we'll get a really early start the next morning and then we'll hitchhike to Haight-Ashbury. And, um, so, you know, then we were thinking, well, where could we go shelter, right? And I had been taking a yoga class at uh, at a local church, and I thought, oh, well, you know, it, uh, the church would probably be open, right? The building would, would probably be open all, all, you know, all night. Um, and so we'll just, we'll try that. And we did. And, and the, it was indeed open. The church was open. And so we went in and we, we curled up on the pews, you know, sort of up near the front, near the, the altar. Um, and we, uh, you know, decided we would take turns, um, sleeping. Um, and, and one person would be awake to keep watch. And so we would, you know, we would do this all night and then we would get up very early and, uh, and go back out and hitchhike to Haight Ashbury. Um, and so we, all three of us promptly fell asleep. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the next thing we, we knew, uh, the, we were being woken up by the dean of the, uh, the boarding school, um, who is this, um, he was from Texas and he was, you know, he, I remember waking up and he was saying, all right, girls, it's time to go home now. <laughs> right. And, and so we were, you know, the three of us sort of abject shivering little 14 year olds were 
brought back to the school. And, um, and, you know, we were expecting the worst. We were expecting, you know, to be suspended or, you know, whatever, some terrible punishment. But as it turns out, the, the dean, this guy from Texas, was, a, I don't know, a, a, a deacon or, or was affiliated with the church in some way. And so when he got the telephone call that we were missing, he thought to himself, you know, now where would three little lost lambs go? You know? <laughs> and, and, and he said, well, the, you know, they would, they would go to God. And so the, the church was the first place he went to look for us. And sure enough, there we were. And that somehow convinced him that we were, that we were you know, good, well-meaning girls. And, and uh, so I think we were, our punishment was, was chopping wood. We had to chop, you know, wood every afternoon for a week or you something got, You like got that. off easy. We got off easy. We got off easy. <laughs> so let me let me ask you. I'm I'm curious since you you know you're we're dealing in a historical context yeah, with yeah. like the '60s and hippies and you know that particular <laughs> that particular period in American history. And uh, yeah. if did you do psychedelics? Did that have any kind of impact on your uh, life and worldview? Well, I don't know whether it had any impact. I mean, yes, of course I did. Um, uh, I don't know whether it had any. Well, maybe it did. Um, you know, I remember taking psilocybin when I was um, when I was you know in in high school, and um, you know, and it is a you know it, it's a profound experience, right? I mean, it it does sort of open you up and 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 make you feel this you know very intense connection with you know the present moment and and the entire world you know it's, right. it's like all your boundaries dissolve and and everything is so stunningly beautiful and um you know and and just filled with love you know <laughs> right and, and and so I, I suppose that in a way having experienced that um yeah I, I was never a big you know, I was never seriously into into drugs, but you know, I did I did take psychedelics a couple of times, um, and uh, and I think probably having that experience does, you know, change you in some way in the sense that it it uh, it makes you sort of understand that feeling that way is possible at all, right? Have you ever? I mean, have you ever done psychedelics? Did yeah, did you? Yeah, I have mean, you ever had that experience? Yeah, the reason I ask is because it's like a running. It's almost like a joke at this point on my show where I, I ask writers about it. I'm curious about it, and I, I always kind of pair the experiences that I have with psychedelics as a young person. I was probably 19 years old. Uh, mm -hmm. It's the only time I've I've done them, and yet I'm I can't stop thinking about it. And I'm I'm, mm. inter I'm interested in the corollary between those experiences which feel sort of sloppy or, or they were sort of sloppy and um what's the word you know hard to hard to grasp and hard to recollect in any kind mm -hmm. of uh normal way and yet in, immensely powerful and mm -hmm. th there's this kind of an, in, there's this kind of intuitive sense that i have that they fundamentally changed me and without those experiences i would probably be on a, a pretty different path uh mm -hmm. And yet, I haven't taken them again, <laughs> and I, I'm right. all, and I'm also interested in the uh, in the perspective of Buddhism, and all of the Buddhist texts that I've read, and all the Dharma talks that I've listened to. You know, the the theme tends to be like there aren't any shortcuts. There there really aren't a lot of advocates for the use of of drugs at all uh, in the Buddhist uh, 
priesthood, if that's what you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And so, but yet there are, you know, I have read some, there are some Buddhists who have found use of, you know, use for psychedelics. But anyway, I just, I feel like there's yeah, an, there's yeah. an intermingling. I think what you were saying about how it, it hints at the possibility, or it gives you this sense of like feeling this way is possible. Yeah. And, and I think for me, it, like fundamentally, it just made me realize that I really don't know very much. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. But, that everything is this tremendous mystery. Yes. And, yeah, and, yeah. and that there is a, uh, that I'm a lot more mutable than I had thought mm-hmm. that like whatever like sense of fixed identity that I had sort mm-hmm. of when that really melts away in a visceral manner, that's a profound experience. <laughs> it is, it is, it is. It's, it, that's a beautiful way of putting it too. I mean, just the sense of one's boundaries, just kind of dissolving, you know, and a, a feeling of self merging with the world. Um, and and it's a you know i think it's i don't think it's an accident that you know that buddhism got you know became popular in you know america in the 60s you know i mean a lot of a lot of people were taking a lot of psychedelic drugs in the 60s and you know and and having these experiences and then you know trying to figure out some philosophical groundwork or some philosophical path to you know, feelings that are somehow, you know, or an experience that's somehow analogous. And, and, um, you know, so I, I think that there, I do think that there's, uh, you know, what, um, uh, I don't want to say similarity, but there's, there's something analogous there going on. And, and I, I know that, um, you know, you, you, it was interesting. You mentioned, uh, that the psychedelic drug experience was, you know, was sloppy, I think was the word that you used. Um, and, you know, perhaps that's one of the things that's, you know, that's very different because the, you know, the, you know, when you, when you go on an intense, you know, sort of meditation retreat, um, you know, it's, it's very ritualized and, um, and not sloppy, right. you know, it's, it's very contained and yet it, you know, provides, the occasion for that same kind of opening to the world, um, which, you know, I mean, I think any, any, you know, literature on meditation, um, you know, touches on this, right. That, that these experiences, these moments of after long, you know, after long periods of meditation where that same feeling of your boundaries just dissolving and a feeling of merging happening. Um, I, you know, Dogen Zenji talks about it as, you know, the dropping off of body and mind. Um, these are, you know, these are very real experiences, meditative experiences, um, that, you know, that are arrived at, you know, in a different way, not, not through, you know, not through taking, altering the chemistry of, you know, of, of your body, but, um, through, you know, through the, through the meditative practice. Well, and it's, it's interesting because I, I was just thinking that there's some sort of strange corollary between the two experiences and uh, related to set and setting, because I think in mm-hmm. order to get to those deep, like super deep levels of meditation, you have to, it, it, it's, you don't necessarily have to, but it strikes me that it would be really helpful to be in uh, a place that's way out in nature, removed from the, bu- mm-hmm. the bustle of a city and that is qui- mm-hmm. that is quiet and that is ritualized and you're there for a while. So you kind of have, like, if you commit to like a month long or a two month long retreat or something like that, uh, which I've never done, but which mm-hmm. I, which sounds great to me, even, mm-hmm. even though I know it would probably be a lot harder than, uh, than I, you know, I would care to admit, I think it would be 
conducive to to getting there because eventually you, you probably wear yourself out you just you, you you think and you think and you think and <laughs> eventually you're going to get quiet right <laughs> yeah exactly 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 yeah the futility of it all just you know <laughs> some point just you, totally wear yeah. at some point you give up that's right exactly exactly no you do you, you give up right um no i think that's i think that's i think that's true and i i think too that the more you do it the more you know, the the more you meditate and the, you know, the, you know, the more you do the longer, you know, longer meditation retreats, you know, I try to do, uh, you know, a longer sort of week long uh, meditation retreat, um, at least once a year, I used to, you know, do it more often before I was teaching. Um, and, and there is a, a sense of it, you know, um, uh, sort of, what I mean, you, you know, your experience just accumulates, right? And um, <clears throat> but I remember, uh, you know, and and yes, of course, you know, to be in nature, to be in a, you know, in a kind of quiet, you know, uh, bucolic setting is is uh, is lovely. But I've also had very profound um, experiences meditating, you know, in urban centers as well. And and um, there's uh, in in Brooklyn, there's a wonderful Zen center called the um, Brooklyn Zen Center, and um, it's in it's in uh, you know really right in the the heart of Brooklyn in a area that's not terribly quiet at all, <laughs> and um, and one of the one of the uh, the things that they they do there is um, uh, on New Year's Eve they have a a wonderful New Year's Eve program that anybody can go to. You don't have to be a member of the Sangha or, you know, you, you don't necessarily even have to have ever meditated before. You just need to, you know, have the desire to spend New Year's doing something else other than, you know, drinking heavily. Right. <laughs> right. And, um, and so you go to the, you go to the Zen center and, um, and this is a Japanese tradition, but you uh, spend several hours cleaning. Right. Because that's one of the things that you do at the end of the year. You want to clean up all of the dirt from the old year and, and, you know, um, and make everything nice and, you know, nice and neat and clean. And then um, they, they make uh, noodles, right, for dinner. And so you and, and this is once again a Japanese tradition. Um, it's called um, bridging the year noodles or something like that in Japanese. That's kind of a, dirt, a literal translation. Um, and, and the idea, too, is that noodles are long. And so they symbolize kind of long life. Right. So it's a very, you know, everything, of course, is is significant somehow. Right. And then you sit and then you go back into the Zendo and you sit and um, and you sit for several periods um, of, of, you know, of Zazen. And um, and then just at the cusp of, you know, at midnight, um, they start ringing the big this big, deep bell and they ring the bell 108 times, which is a very important number in Buddhism. And they ring it very slowly, you know, and this bell, you know, sort of is is you know very you know it reverberates through the zendo and outside you can hear everyone partying and screaming and <laughs> you know and and you can hear the fireworks exploding and you can hear people throwing up and you know i mean it's just you know <laughs> and and all of that's happening outside and that noise is kind of mingling with the sound of this beautiful sonorous sound of the bell right and you're sitting there quietly you know in your in, in you know your zen posture and it, it's a very beautiful thing you know <laughs> well and i think too i think too like you know it's one thing there's certainly a place for removing oneself and going on retreat and getting super quiet in a super quiet setting yeah. but most of us don't have the luxury uh, of yeah, right? being removed you sort of have to live in the world and you have to be 
going through airports and living in cities and so on and so forth. And I think you have to learn how to practice there too. That's kind of what it's for. You have to engage with the world. Yeah, absolutely. And so you bring, you know, you bring the practice with you, right? You you just, you bring it with you and you, um, and you, you know, sort of are able to, I think, touch into it, you know, whenever you need it. Um, I, you know, I teach, I teach meditation to my students. Um, I teach creative writing, right? And so to my mind, you know, uh, I mean, I don't know how I would have continued being a novelist if it hadn't been for a meditation practice. You know, um, publishing yeah. is really rough, and you know, so right. you know, the meditation has been has been really uh, very very useful. Um, but in any case, you know, I, I teach my students this too, and and it's just you know, just even the even the simplest, quickest practice of being able to drop back into the body, you know, and and just get in touch with, you know the body in the present moment is, is so useful, right? So uh, even, if, even if that's all they take away from my class, then that will make me happy. So when did you get into writing? Like we got to your, mm-hmm. co- we, we kind of got to your boarding school and then uh, yeah, right. this, this like, you know, aborted trip to San Francisco and the hate into yeah. Ashbury. And then uh, you went off to school uh, after boarding school. And like, were you on the track to become a writer then? Were you, I know you said you were kind of meditating sporadically, but like, when did things really take hold for you? Yeah, well, you know, in in high school, at that boarding school, um, it, it the the part of the school, what what, I, what really worked for me was, um, uh, for some reason, there were a, there was a group of us who took writing very, very seriously. You know, we really saw ourselves as, you know, young, you know, F. Scott Fitzgeralds and Hemingways and, you know, Anais Nin and Virginia Woolf. And, you know, we, we, uh, we really thought that's who we were, that's who we were and that's who we were going to be, you know. And, and, um, and it's interesting because many of the students who were my classmates have gone on to be writers, right? There, there's a whole group of us who've gone on to um, be writers, including um, Susan Minot and Julia Glass and, you know, many, many poets, uh, you know, Julie Agus, a uh, wonderful poet, um, and others, too. I mean, I'm just sort of spacing on their names right now. Um, and, and so that, you know, the, the writing started then, I think, seriously for me, um, you know, when I was about 14 or 15. And I was, um, I was writing trying to write poetry at the time, which did not really work that well. I'm not a very good poet. Um, but soon after that, when I, you know, when I, uh, started in college, I think I started writing short stories and, um, and continued, you know, through college and afterwards. Um, and, you know, I think that the one thing that I always wanted from the time I was quite young was to, you know, was to write novels, but it took me, it took me quite a while to get to the point of being able to do that. And I had to have a whole other career as a film and television producer um, in between there. Which which um, worked its way into one of your novels. So yes, it was, exactly. It was all grist for the mill. It was all grist for the mill. It was all grist for the mill, exactly. And it really, I think working in, you know, working in film and television um, gave me the, it, it sort of toughened me up in a way. Um, you know, it, it, uh, I think I cared so much about writing that I was just really afraid to fail. And so that was getting in my way. And in, you know, working in commercial film and television, um, fear of failure is not an option. 
you know, you, you get that beaten out of you pretty quickly. And, um, you know, because you're always failing, you know, you just say <laughs> everything that you do is a tremendous failure. And, uh, you know, so, I, and I was working for Japanese television too. So it was, um, you know, it, it was even, I don't know whether it was more rigorous, but it was certainly, um, you know, there, there was a, there's a lot that that Zen training has in common with working working for commercial t- Japanese television. Um, so, so, so you it, speak Japanese? I do. I do. Okay. Yeah, I do. I guess you you would have to if you're working for would, Japanese yeah. TV. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, that was so that was good, and I, I learned you know I learned a lot about storytelling. You know, I learned a lot about how to tell a story because you know of course in television you know every second has a price tag on it it's expensive and um and so if you can't you know and it's it's so easy to change channels even you know more so now than ever and um so if you can't you know hook your viewer uh quickly right and and tell the story um in a in a very compelling way uh, you know it, it, it just it, it won't work and um and so i think that that was a you know sort of just basically sort of mastering you know, really basic storytelling techniques um, was what uh, the work in television enabled me to do. Yeah, I think that's that. There's some truth to that. You know, understanding how to structure something, especially for some someone who's writing a novel, which is a pretty loose form. Uh, I don't think it's a bad idea to read some books on like screenwriting and uh, story structure for uh, for the screenplay or the teleplay, because I think even if you don't necessarily follow it one for one. It, you know, I think intuitively, if it's in there somewhere, you can you can apply it, and it can help you. Make, it can help you prevent your your novels from dragging. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Exactly. 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 Yeah. No. One of the one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite writing books of all time is is Robert McKee's book called Story. Right. And it's a it's a Robert McKee is a screen screenwriter, but he. Um, you know he and and the the work that he analyzes and and talks about in this book is is um primarily screenplays but you know it it is a brilliant book for anybody who just wants to understand and think about you know the the basic you know i, I don't want to use rules but the basic practices i guess um you know that that uh help make a good story and of course all of these rules can be broken you know but you have to i think know the rules first before you can break them right 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 yeah. um and so you do this work in in television you live overseas mm-hmm. you live in japan for a while i did yes after um after graduate well actually while i was at smith um i took a couple of years off i i was kind of on the slow track um back then those things you know that was kind of possible <laughs> um and uh so i took a couple of years off um you know, in, in the middle of my, uh, you know, my time at college. And then after I graduated, I, uh, received a, um, Japanese ministry of education fellowship to go back and do graduate work in Japan. Um, and, and, uh, so I did that for several years and, you know, when I was in Japan, I did a bunch of other things too. I mean, I started, um, I, I studied Japanese no theater performance, um, mask carving, you know, this is a, a type of, of Japanese the- theatrical performance. Um, you know, I was, uh, I was teaching college. I started a language school, you know, 
did a did a whole bunch of published published a couple of textbooks uh just you know basically did a lot of different things for about eight years and then after that came back to new york um i met you know i met a a guy and um and uh we got engaged and so i came back to new york to to marry him and he was involved in the film business and so um you know i had been studying you know all of this really esoteric japanese you know classical japanese literature and no drama and there there wasn't a huge number of jobs in that particular field in new york <laughs> i was going to say <laughs> right and so i came back and um and ended up getting a job as a storyboard artist for a um a, a production company uh in new york and now this was in gosh this was in the I'm losing track of time here. Um, this was in the 80s, okay? And um, and it's just hard to believe that this is true, but it, it, it is true, that, you know, VHS technology was new, right? And, um, you know, so there were these, you know, video cassette recorders that were, you know, being sold and people could watch movies at home for the first time, right? They could They could actually control... The movies that were, you know, that they were going to watch, and um, and so suddenly there was this huge market for content, right? There was a huge market um, for for uh, movies that go, could go to, you know, go to videotape, and um, and so I got a job at um, uh, making, and, and so suddenly, you know, all of these production companies were springing up trying to make really really low budget fast movies that could go direct to videotape without a theatrical release. And so I got a job um, making uh, on, on a film called, um, it was called Matt Riker Mutant Hunt. <laughs> and, and I got a job as a storyboard artist because I could, I could draw a little bit. And, um, and so I started going to the production meetings and, um, you know, showing up, you know, however, every, every day at the meetings and kept waiting to, draw you know a storyboard and um the company was um was very disorganized they didn't they they had prior to this they had um the the director was this guy named tim kincaid who apparently before that had been had made it a name for himself uh directing um gay male porn and um <laughs> under under this under the name you know the the you know the the name joe gage and uh so you know he was famous for that but this was his bid for legitimacy i think was moving into low budget horror and um and so that's what uh you know that that's that that was what matt Riker mutant hunt was anyway you know make a long story short a week before production was to start they suddenly you know, realized that they didn't have an art director and they looked around the table and realized that, you know, I was the only person who wasn't really doing anything. And they sort of waved their, you know, their collective hand at me and said, you, you be the art director. And I had never set foot on a film set before. So I, you know, really didn't know, you know, what this even entailed. Um, and then they didn't seem concerned about that at all. They said, we'll tell you just, you know, we'll hire somebody who, you know, as an assistant for you and, and, you know, we'll tell you what to do. So they hired, you know, a, a, an art student who in fact had a little bit of experience, you know, making things with her hands. And, um, and together we were the art department and we did a whole series of films together. Um, she's now a very, uh, wonderful and well-known artist named, her name is Marina Zerko. And, um, and so she's gone on to have a, have a wonderful art career, but to, you know, we started out together making Matt Riker mutant hunt. And then I think we did breeders, 
necropolis, um, enemy territory, uh, robot holocaust is another one. (laughs) That's a good title. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good title. It's a good title. And, And you know mystery science fiction, right? Where you... that, mystery science theater yeah 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 of course yeah. okay that's where you can see these films now <laughs> wonderful well you've you've done so much like i mean like the yeah. the mass carving and the, the japanese theater and you know you're one of these people it's like i, I like if I, I don't know if i could actualize all of that stuff even if i were bouncing around and in these places like you have kind of a knack for falling into things is that i guess i mean i, I just needed a job right so uh, I, I needed a job, and, I, and, and this seemed interesting. And, and you know, um, it was either that or, I mean, the only other option really was, I mean, I didn't really have another option. You know, that's what all of these people were doing, and, and it seemed better than the other, you know, the other kinds of films that they were making, you know, were, were porn, right? So I, I, that wasn't really that interesting to me. And so, um, although I have to say that the line between, you know, porn and what we were making was you know, it was not that distinct. You know? <laughs> um, it was, it was, yeah, it was really questionable stuff. And I, and I think now back on this and I, I just think, oh my gosh, you know, uh, how could I have done this? You know, how, how, uh, you know, I remember being under the Brooklyn bridge, creating a breeding pit for, <laughs> you know, for, for aliens, you know, where they would bring young New York virgins into the breeding pit um, and and breed with them. And so we were tasked with building this pit, which we did. And um, and then we were supposed to fill it up with slime of some kind, alien <laughs> breeding slime. And, um, you know, and, and um, but, you know, you learn on the job. You know, you don't know how to make alien slime. And so, you know, you ask around and somebody tells you, oh, it's the best alien slime is made with you know, methyl cellulose, which is bookbinding glue, right? And and that makes the most convincing slime. And so, you know, we would get methyl cellulose and try to make it and, you know, um, I, you know, and, and all of these, you know, young actors, you know, they would, you know, be put sort of semi-naked into this horrible <laughs> pit that we, you know, that we built for them. And, and you know, one of my jobs was to um, in between cuts, go around with a little ladle and a bucket and ladle more slime on their <laughs> on their breasts. Right? And, and um, you know, and so, uh, you know, needless to say this, you know, you, you, you do it at the time. You're just doing it. Right. You're just doing it because everything's an emergency. And, you know, um, and and, you know, that's what the film business is like, you know, and, and everyone's doing it. Right. So you, you do it. And then afterwards you think about it and you think, wow that was not great. You know, I, I really, you know, as a, as a feminist, you know, and, uh, as a person, right. I, I have a problem with this, right? Right. but at the time it, it, I was young and it didn't really, it didn't really hit me. So in any case, what I'm building up to here is, is just to talk about how, you know, the, the, so much of the writing that I end up, ended up doing was writing out of remorse. You know, it was writing out of a feeling of like, you know, you know, because the good thing about writing is that nobody cares really how long it takes you to do it. So you've got lots of time to kind of sit with your feelings of remorse and, and sort of try to understand them and try to understand the, the circumstances that, you know, allowed you to behave in these ways that are now causing you remorse. Right. And so um, so that, you know, uh, that's what I that my first book was all about that. Right. It was all about um, the remorse I felt, uh, after, you know, at having 
you know, uh, worked in commercial television, um, advertising, you know, basically making shows that advertise products that I really didn't believe in, you mm-hmm. know, like, you know, Philip Morris cigarettes, for example, or, or, you know, working for a show that was sponsored by the, the meat industry, you know, the U S meat industry. Um, and, and so, you know, the, in any case, the, the, for me, I think writing came directly out of the experience I had, you know, making media, uh, making commercial media, um, and really, you know, thinking more deeply about the relationship between money and what we are, you know, what media presents as reality, you know, like right, right, right livelihood. Yeah, right. Exactly. 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 And so, and, yeah, uh, and right livelihood was a foreign concept to me until, you know, <laughs> right. Until I started, until I started writing. You know? Well, I wanted to ask you, cause like, you know, we're talking about the build up to you transitioning away from working in television to working on fiction. Uh, and, and your, I mean, I guess your own filmmaking as well, but, um, I'm curious to know, like, did that coincide with uh, taking your Buddhist practice more seriously? Like, when did that happen for you? Um, it was actually not coincidental. Um, I'm trying to think now. I started, well, actually, no. You know, it was. It was. Uh, that's interesting. I had never really lined those two things up before. But um, I started working on my first novel it must have been in uh 1996 and i had just finished a film and you know uh was deep in credit card debt from using my visa card to finance my films and um and so i turned to writing because it was cheap um and i could do it without getting further into debt and so um and it was, but it was right around that time too when uh, my father was, um, you know, his health was beginning to fail, and you know the traditional thing that turns you towards, you know, a Buddhist path is the realization of sickness, old age, and death. And my parents were, you know, quite elderly at that point, and um, and my dad was uh not in in good health and um and i think i began to sense that you know that that uh you know that the end was near and um and it was right around then that i started taking uh i i was in new york at that time and i started practicing um at the shambhala center in new york and um and and so yes actually the two the two things were happening more or less at the same time and i think um you know, the, the examination that I was doing of my, you know, this sort of practice of writing out of remorse, you know, and sort of trying to examine what it is that I had, you know, I had done in earlier parts of my life, you know, um, I don't know whether that was a direct outcome of the sitting practice, but, um, in any case it, it, you know, the sitting practice certainly, I think helped me do that, um, and helped me sort of sit and you know sit with these sit with these questions that i had well it's, because that yeah that gonna, to me is what writing is all about writing is all about just sitting with questions i was just going to say and and the other thing too and i guess, i guess the, the same can be said for both both meditation and and writing is that you only have so much control over what comes up 
<laughs> and the more that you do it, <laughs> the more you, the more intimately you become acquainted with your obsessions and your regrets and your fears and your angers and your you know like this stuff keeps showing up. The more you do it, the more you see the lines of consistency. And uh, I guess at some point it gets interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. I find myself, you know, I don't know, it, it, it's helpful. I don't necessarily always come up with some sort of solution. It's not, it's not that clean, but mm -hmm. I do notice certain things over and over and over again, showing themselves to me. And that, that in and of itself is, is helpful. Uh, yeah. so yeah, I, I, I get, think... I don't know. There's a, there's a confrontation that happens and, uh, I guess it makes sense to me that you would be experiencing this shift in your professional life and this shift in your spiritual life uh, concurrently. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's true. I think that's really true. And, and what you just said reminded me of something else too, which is that, um, you know, in, in, in Buddhism, which I'm, I'm sure you know this, but just the, the idea of the three pillars, right. Of, of Buddhist practice. Um, and those three being, um, you know, uh, meditation, um, and ethical, ethical practice, right. And, insight right and and or wisdom right and and the idea is that you know it, it's like a tripod and um and that all three of those are um necessary and lead to one another so you know um you know uh if you sit for long enough and you know things in your behavior um are you know uh problematic in some way that will you'll become aware of it very quickly right when you're you know when you're sitting there you'll you'll start to feel remorse you'll start to be you'll you'll start to notice that your thoughts keep gravitating towards back to you know whatever it is this kernel of discomfort you know um in in your behavior right and so it, you will you will then you know sit with that and and investigate it and then eventually that leads to some sort of insight, right? Um, and and so you know the 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 three, you know the, these three sort of areas of practice, um, I, I think are are um, you know they they support each other, right? Um, and I think that that was certainly what was happening um, with with me at the time. Did it lead to any kind of creative breakthrough? Like did it re like was there a real detectable shift in your ability to get words on the page, or you know because we talk about meditation and how intense it can be, even though it's it's relatively simple in practice. You, you, you sit there, you, you focus on your breathing. It sounds so easy. <laughs> yeah. Right. It sounds so easy. Right? Uh, and and yeah. then it starts to, you it starts, you know, you start to realize like, this is, this isn't very peaceful sometimes, or this isn't fun. And yeah, yeah. there's some, you know, I always notice, uh, there's this remarkable force within me that is resistant to stopping. And it's, it, it you know, it's especially so in the evening if I sit down because I've been kind of going all day, but I'm also often made aware of like how I can wake up at like five thirty in the morning and there's this velocity already, like in my mind, you know, <laughs> like you would, yeah. th you would think it would give me a break, but it's there right away. And I'm like, man, yeah. the, the sun's not even up and I'm already crazy, you know? And yeah. you sort yeah. of, you yeah. sort of sit there and, and, you know, you get used to, to being with it or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I'm trying to recall, I don't even, I think I lost my train of thought in terms of where I was going, but it's, it's a useful practice when it comes to the discipline of sitting in front of a keyboard and being with your story repeatedly, the same scenes, the same lines, the same characters, the same yep. problems, uh, and challenges in terms of trying to find the narrative or whatever. Like, I think that the two 
practices have a lot in common and can help one another. Absolutely. No, and that's what I mean about I, I don't know how I would have continued to write if it hadn't been for, you know, the, the, the sitting training, you know. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, that, that I very often tell my students is that, um, you know, so we're, you know, you, you, you sit, you find your posture, you know, you tune into the body, you tune into the breath, um, you know, if thoughts come, you know, you, uh, you know, you notice that they're there and, you know, you very gently sort of relax your hold on them and then return your awareness very gently back to the breath, right? And so you're, and, and this happens over and over and over <laughs> and over and over and over again, right? And so we very often talk about meditation, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, minds are meant to think, and, and so minds do think. They do it very well. Um, and, you know, so, so we talk about meditation as the practice of return, right? And very often, certainly beginning meditators, right? It, and, and I'm sure you'll understand, you, you understand this, but beginning, beginning meditators often, you know, the, the minute they start getting hijacked by their thoughts, right, they think, ah, damn, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm, I screwed up, you know, I'm not meditating, I'm not doing this right, you know, right. Um, and, and, you know, and, and that to me is, is a, a, you know, a very key, um, you know, experience, because you have that experience often enough, which you will, right, if you, if you sit for long enough, you know, you, you, you wear it out, right, you wear out that, that feeling of like, you know, of, of judging yourself and, and failing, right? Um, you, you start to understand that that's, that is the, that is the practice. The, and so we call it the practice of return, right? Just returning to the body and breath, returning to the body and breath over and over and over again. And, you know, I can't think of anything that describes the practice of writing better than that. You know, I mean, you know, certainly if you're writing a novel, you know, you spend most of your time you know, on that shitty first draft, right? And and so I'll, I'll spend years writing a shitty first draft, and um, you know, and and I have to somehow forgive myself for you know being a person who writes shitty first drafts for <laughs> very long periods of time, right? And and being you know not being the writer that I want to be, right? Um, and not judging myself for it, and you know, and persisting in spite of this fact, right? Um, and and that, you know, requires a certain kind of, I mean, it's not always like that. There are days when, you know, I might write like a, a you know, a beautiful sentence or two and, and how wonderful, you know, how wonderful that is. Um, but at the same time, you know, the other is, is probably more true, you know? And, um, and and so in that sense, you know, the, the meditation practice is really, it, it trains you in a kind of, um, a kind of patience, you know, um, with yourself and with other people as well. And that's, you know, I, maybe that's all spiritual training is, is, you know, is, is a practice of patience. Yeah. And, um, and well, the, you know, you talk about how the meditation practice helps you as a writer and helps bring that patience and that discipline and that willingness to sit with mm -hmm. it. But what about like the hard stuff of life? Like you mentioned your parents, um, mm. you know, losing your parents, they're them going into, uh, declining health, you know, that, that's something that if, if we live long enough, we all go through. Yeah. Uh, yeah and, yeah. and that's, you know, that's a lot of what, uh, any kind of spiritual practice I think is, is for is to help, is to help us, mm -hmm. uh, process and deal with these, 
really difficult life experiences. So can you talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about how, like, as you were kind of getting more serious about your meditation practice and it was leading you into this shift in your creative life, like how did it help you in your actual life? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think that I'm I'm trying to, I'm I'm trying to sort of piece together, um, you know, my, my father, uh, died in 1998, um, literally a week before my first novel was published. And so, you know, he died. And then a week later I was at Barnes and Noble in, you know, lower Manhattan, uh, doing my first reading. And, um, and this was a very, very, very difficult time for me. Um, and I, you know, I have to say that looking back on it, you know, I did not do a great job. Um, even though I tried very hard and I don't really blame myself for it too much, but, um, I, I did not do a good job, uh, sort of really, um, being present, uh, and what, um, maintaining any kind of equilibrium during my father's final months. It was, it was just a very, very, very difficult, you know, thing for me. My mother was also, uh, you know, she had Alzheimer's by then. So I was trying to figure out, um, you know, how, how to take care of her and how to go on book tour. And, you know, I, it was, it was a, you know, it was kind of a catastrophe. Um, and I think that, you know, once again, goes back to this remorse thing. Um, you know, the, the understanding that, um, and, and also watching my, my father die with a lot of remorse. I mean, he had, he had a, he was tremendously burdened with remorse at the end of his life. I think that's, it was really that more than anything else that made me get very, very serious about, uh, about meditation practice, about, about, you know, um, about spiritual practice. Um, because I just, I knew that I couldn't do this. I I couldn't go through this again, that I, I needed help. I needed more of a foundation. I needed more, um, you know, more equanimity, um, a practice. I needed a practice. I needed, I needed a backbone something that I could really rely on because I knew too that my, you know, it was not going to be easy with my mom, you know, because Alzheimer's is very difficult. Right. Sure. And, um, and we were also bringing her to live with us. My husband and I were bringing her to live with us. And, and, you know, I, I just could see that there were, you know, going to be very big challenges ahead. So in any case, that's when, um, it was right around that time that I started practicing with Norman Fisher, um, and the everyday Zen Sangha. And, um, and that, was that was really where things changed for me um and i you know uh was very serious about the practice um you know during the years that i was taking care of my mom um she eventually died uh in 2004 um of cancer uh which it's hard enough to take care of somebody who's got alzheimer's but you know to add the cancer into this was was really you know it was really cruel um yeah it was it was it was horrible but um but you know um i i by then was really feeling the effects i think of you know of of the sitting and um you know and the support from the sangha and you know from from the other people i was practicing with and um and from you know from my teacher as well from norman as well and was able to uh you know was able to just sort of be there for her in a way that i hadn't been able to be um be there for my for my dad um 
And so that was, you know, that I think that's when I decided, you know, this this really is a helpful practice, you know, and I would very much like to um, somehow help to, you know, transmit it in however, you know, and, and maybe as a teacher or whatever, I'd like to be a part of, of this lineage in a formal way um, and, and, you know, just help um, uh, transmit it and, and teach other people. And well, so that's, that's when I decided um, to ask for ordination. And, well, and so everything followed from there. Well, it's, it's interesting that you talk about, um, you know, witnessing someone at the end of their life having regrets uh, mm-hmm. Because I'm reading this book right now by Frank Ostas, I think it's Ostaseski at San Francisco yes. uh, Zen Hospice. Yep. He's a hospice worker from the San Francisco Zen Center, and he's been with uh, you know hundreds of thousands, maybe even of people at the end of their lives. And yeah. it's kind of a book about all about his experience of of you know being with people and seeing the different ways in which people handle their own death. And so there is you know because I think there's a part of me that is dreadfully afraid of getting to the end of my life and having a lot of uh, remorse or like Mm -hmm. regret. And, you know, it's, it's pretty hard, I I think, to get to the end of your life and just be like, yep, I did it right. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. I, you know, without wanting to, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds into your personal experience or your relationship Mm. with your dad. But like, I I do find myself thinking like, well, what was it? Like, what kinds of things um, did he regret? Like, is there anything that you learned from it? Like in terms of how you Mm -hmm. conduct your own life? Uh, Because I I think there's, there's a lot that the dying can teach us in terms of how to live. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And, and, you know, I, uh, you know, being able just, you know, being with both my parents while they were dying was uh, one of the, I think most profound, you know, um, experiences I've ever learning experiences I've ever had, you know, um, and, and it really taught me so much about how I want to live and how I want to die. And, um, and with my dad, you know, my, he was, um, you know, he and I were a lot alike in many ways. And I think that's, that's why, you know, our our relationship was a bit fraught. Um, but one of the, you know, he was a, he was a, uh, a real perfectionist, you know, and so it was very hard for him to, uh, you know, to, to publish. Um, and he was, a, as I said, he was an anthropologist. He was a linguistic anthropologist. And he, um, you know, he, he had done a lot of research and a lot of field work. Um, but it was very, very difficult for him to write up the, you know, the, the papers afterwards because he was, because he was such a perfectionist. Um, and so that perfectionist um, tendency or that, that, that habit um, really really got in his way and so as a result at the end of his life he was dying with a lot of you know really important you know uh research about um uh languages you know and especially languages that were going extinct right uh american indian languages for example um that were endangered um he was he was dying with a lot of that knowledge unpublished right and i think that he felt at the end of his life a sense of having failed these people who he had worked with you know um by not writing up you know not writing up the the results and um and so that sense of remorse was you know was was just you know terrifying to see and you know uh, since i had also you know inherited you know the, these kinds of perfectionistic 
um, tendencies, you know, traits. I, um, I, I watched that. I watched him suffer. And, um, you know, and I, I just remember feeling like, you know, I need to come to grips with this somehow. I need to really, you know, sort of wrestle with my perfectionistic demons and, and try to um, try to make work um, and, you know, write the books that I, you know, want to write um, and not be, you know, censored or hampered by that. Um, and, and so I think, you know, that was that was certainly one thing. Um, another thing, though, too, was that I think that um, what I what I really got a sense of was how, you know, even though my dad had been, uh, you know, he'd had something like seven or eight heart attacks at that point. I mean, you know, he was he had been unwell for a very long time. Um, I, I, I could see that he he always thought that he had more time, you know, <laughs> he always thought that somehow medical science was going to, was going to save him. And, um, you know, because that's how we're raised to, to think, right. That, that, you know, that, 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 that we're somehow immortal and that, you know, that doctors will save us and, and, you know, but in any case, I mean, whether that's true or not, I, I could, I felt that it suddenly hit me that, Oh, death is something you have to prepare for. You know, you have to you have to understand, you know, perhaps even every day you have several times a day, you have to understand that your time here is limited. And so therefore you need to make, you know, your decisions accordingly. And I think that's really what what um, got me, you know, very serious about Buddhism was was this sudden understanding that, you know, that that my time here is is limited, that everything is impermanent. And um, and and so you know, I, I need to start, uh, living, you know, living according with that reality. Well, and, and it's I think, interesting you know, that you, you, know, you talk about, uh, an awareness of death, which I think many people associate with this really kind of morbid worldview and, mm. you know, to contemplate death is, is kind of this goth thing to do or something. <laughs> but it, yeah, yeah. in Buddhism, there is a teaching, there are a lot of, a lot of teachings around it that, uh, advise that you give deep thought to it every day. Like, not mm-hmm, that, you, not, mm-hmm. not that you spend six hours on it, uh, mm-hmm. but that you remember like clock, right. clock is ticking. I am impermanent in, you know, a hundred years from now, I, I'm definitely going to be dust, you know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, rather than making you feel gloomy, I think hopefully it can add a sense of urgency and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, both to your dedication to a Buddhist practice, if that's what you're into or to your writing practice or both, mm-hmm. and that you just I mean, yeah. you live fully and with a greater sense of, uh, urgency. Yeah. I mean, the, what I love about Buddhism is that it's realistic, you know, I mean, I think that the, you know, the sort of, you know, contemplating death you know, from a goth perspective is a kind of romanticizing death, which is not what Buddhism does. You know, Buddhism just simply acknowledges that death is the end for all, you know, that it's, it, 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 you know, it's going to happen to all of us. Right. And, and that's just a very realistic perspective. It's not, it's, it's not, you know, glamorizing it. It's not romanticizing it. It's not fetishizing it. It's, it's just acknowledging the fact that this is, you know, that this is true and that without death, there can't be life. So, you know, life and death perhaps are not as dissimilar as we tend to think they are. Right. Um, and, and, you know, so it's this kind of, uh, it's, it's a very, it's just very down to earth and very matter of fact. And, um, and it's, and it is helpful to remember that, I think, you know, um, and, and, uh, to take it seriously, but not so seriously. Right. 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 Well, <laughs> 
on that note, I hope I hope that everybody I hope that everybody listening spends some time today yeah. contemplating mortality and yeah. uh, living with a greater sense of urgency. And I'm uh, I'm just really grateful to you for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know you're you've got a lot going on, but I've uh, I've so enjoyed talking with you. I congratulate you, and you know I wish we had like six hours to talk because there's there's <laughs> there's more to get to, frankly. And one of the things I want to say before I let you go is that I admire the way that you found. Um, a very uh, you found very elegant ways to take your interest in Buddhism and your deeper spiritual interests or whatever, and to turn them into art that reflects those interests thematically, while also um, telling great stories. That's not easy to do. That's because a lot of times like dogma can slip in. I, I know this mm. from trying to do it myself, where you start to get too explanatory, or it, it's just it's hard to do. And you've done it beautifully, and um, I admire that. Well, thank you very much. I, uh, that that is um, that is the, really the nicest thing to hear uh, because I, I have worked hard to do that, and so it's it's wonderful to hear you know to hear you say that. So thank you. Okay, guys, there you have it. That is Ruth Ozeki, novelist, filmmaker, and Zen Buddhist priest. Go check out her novels, My Year of Meats, All Over Creation, and A Tale for the Time Being. Winner of the L.A. Times Book Prize shortlisted for the Man Booker and the National Book Critics Circle Award. Or go get her nonfiction, The Face, The Time Code, or check out her films, including Having the Bones. That's Ruth Ozeki. You can find her online at ruthozeki.com. She's on Twitter at Ozekiland. She also has a Facebook page. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for uh, the, the theme song music and the band Stereo Total. Thank you. Thanks to the band Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial music. If you want the Other People app, it's free. Go get the Other People app. It's free. If you want to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. I'm way behind on email. I'll try to get back to that uh, in the next episode. There's Twiggy. She has to, like, shake, I feel, in every episode at this point. If you want to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It's a Sunday. Fourth of July is coming up. Wait, is the Fourth of July on a Wednesday? I'm trying to yeah, it is. Wednesday, Fourth of July. There will be a Fourth of July episode of this podcast. I'm gonna put one up. Of course I will. Why would I not? It's Independence Day. It's weird to be celebrating America with fireworks in this time that we live in when things are so upside down and twisted. I'm recording this on Friday. I'm going out marching tomorrow. So by the, by the time you listen to this episode, the march will be over. I hope you marched. This is what I keep saying to myself. Like, I know people are busy, so sometimes you just can't do it, do things logistically. But if you can't get up and get your body into the streets for a bunch of kids who are in cages, I don't know if anything's ever going to, you know, like, what's it going to take? I feel like you got to draw the line. So... I'm going back out. I'm going to march again. I like it. It makes me feel good. I feel like I'm doing something somehow. Just taking up space. I'm taking up the right space. Like other countries, I got, you know, like you think, I think about France. Like, like when the, when the metro doesn't work right in Paris, they're like going on strike. There's like, you know, they go out into the street. I think Americans need to understand that being a body in the street is a powerful thing, especially when enough of us do it. And I don't think maybe we realize our power. Government should fear its citizens, 
you know? Not the other way around. Citizens have to speak up, but you gotta, you know, you gotta exercise it. So, that's what I'm gonna try to do. It's time to, it's past time to speak out. Get into some good trouble, right? Not that marching peacefully is even getting in trouble, but I, I suppose it can be construed as such in certain contexts. So, did I tell you that Twiggy rolled around in coyote poop this morning on the trail when I was hiking? That was fun. I think it was a coyote. I didn't want to talk about that in the monologue before introducing Ruth Ozeki. That's not fair to her, so I'll talk about it now at the end. I was hiking with my dog and she rolled around in feces. The question, because it was a city hike, is was it really coyote poop? I'm not an expert on these things. I really hope it wasn't human. Something about that would uh, disturb me at an advanced level. Okay, I'll be back on the 4th of July. (laughs) 